Welcome to Norse Mythology, the unofficial guide. It's unofficial because I'm neither a credentialed academic nor a time-traveling medieval Norse pagan, but I deal with this material directly from the sources, interpreted through the lens of the experts and their opinions. If you're looking for depth and detail in a simple and accessible way, then you're in the right place. Today I want to start off with a short rant about something that I've mentioned a few times before in passing. But in order to have an effective rant, I'll need to be able to illustrate a few points without having to deal with the baggage that comes from convoluted source material and from people's preconceived notions. So for the purposes of this rant, I'm going to invent a new Norse god that nobody's ever heard of before. And we'll say that this new Norse god that I've just made up is called Tremadr. Now, let's imagine that I told you Tremadr is a god of wind. What does that mean to you when you hear it? For most people, hearing a phrase like god of wind will conjure up a bunch of obvious assumptions. For example, it's pretty likely that when you hear this, you would assume that Tremadr is somehow the origin of the wind, or at the very least, that he probably controls the wind. This is just a hypothetical Norse god we're talking about, so it's a fair guess that if you want a good wind on a voyage, you might want a sacrifice to Tremother before setting out so that he can provide you with it. If your house gets blown over by a tornado, Tremother was probably mad at you for something. If none of these things are true of Tremother, it would be completely nonsensical for me to call him a god of wind, since the word of implies things like origin or possession or some kind of relationship between two things. If there is no demonstrable special relationship between Tremother and the wind, then he wouldn't be a god of wind. So far, I don't think I've said anything too crazy. Just about everyone should be in agreement with me so far. But here's where the nuance begins. This time, instead of telling you Tremother is a god of wind, Let's say I told you that he is a god associated with wind. What is the difference between these two claims? In the context of mythological source material, the word associated means that two things have been connected in some way at some point in the material. Associations become stronger the more frequently this happens. But this nuance is often lost on casual readers, so let me provide some examples to help illustrate the point. Here's a story I've just made up about Tremother. Odin was riding through the forest when he came upon Tremother, who was wearing some clothes that Odin had given him a long time ago. Give me back those clothes, Tremother, he said. I need something better to wear at the thing than this old cloak. But Tremother's clothes were very fine, and he did not want to trade them for an old cloak, so he refused. No sooner had he refused than a strong wind came out of nowhere and blew the clothes right off of him so that he was naked. Odin, who was equally surprised by this, laughed and said, Your refusals are in vain, Tremother, for I will always get what I want if fate wills it. The end. And now, Tremother is associated with wind. In this case, he hasn't controlled the wind. The wind hasn't even worked to his advantage. But he appears together with the wind in a story. So now there is an association, albeit a weak one. In fact, we don't have any more association between Tremother and the wind than we do between Odin and the wind at this point. So let's invent another story. Here it goes. Tremother and Freyr were traveling together across a wide field on their way to do battle with some Jotnar. They thought it would be wise to come up with a battle strategy before arriving. 
but every time one of them tried to speak to the other, a strong wind kicked up, making it difficult to hear what the other person was saying. When they arrived at the battle, they were forced to fight without having planned any strategy ahead of time, and so things got pretty perilous until Thor appeared at the last second with his hammer and crushed all the Jotun's skulls. The end. Now we're starting to develop a strong association. It seems every time Tremother appears in a story, he does so alongside a strong wind. But he is clearly not the wind, and he's clearly not remembered in the stories as being what we would call a god of wind. So what could this pattern of association mean? All we can really say for sure with the information I've provided is that the imaginary creators of stories about Tremother pretty unanimously felt like it made sense to bring wind into narratives where he was involved. In this way, an association can be a lot like a meme. Everybody's reproducing different versions of a single idea. But why does any given meme become a meme in the first place? There could be a million reasons for this. Maybe there was an original story that became widely popular featuring Trey Mother in the Wind, which inspired other creators to reuse the trope. Maybe these stories descend from a more ancient narrative since lost to history, in which Trey Mother has a rivalry with the Jotun Eagle Hrasvelger, who we are told in the sources does control the wind. Maybe there was a time long ago when some kind of proto-Germanic Traumans actually was a god of the wind. Any number of explanations are possible, and we would need more evidence and some experienced analysis to pick any one of them as being most likely. So, with a clear understanding of what associated with means, I want to ask you to think back on all the books and blogs you've read and all the YouTube videos you've seen that told you Loki is a god associated with fire. Think really hard and see if you can remember even a single one outside the academic sphere that actually provided any examples at all of how Loki is associated with fire in the sources. My guess is that you probably can't think of any. Why do you suppose this is? Well, first of all, it's not because it's false. In fact, it's true. But authors don't avoid explaining these associations because they're just making them up, usually. But they avoid explaining either because they themselves don't actually know where those associations come from, and they're just regurgitating someone else's information, or because explaining would actually weaken the message they are implicitly and dishonestly trying to convey, which is that they want you to consider so-and-so to be a god of the thing that they are associated with. Otherwise, what's the purpose of telling you so-and-so is associated with such-and-such -such without any further elaboration? Sticking to our example of Loki, let's examine his association with fire from a high level. Loki sits by a fireplace where he invents the first fishing net while on the run from the other gods after orchestrating Baldur's death. Loki has an eating contest against fire at Utgarthaloki's hall, which he loses. Loki has an antagonistic conversation with a character named Eldir, which means something like fire stoker, in the poem Lokasena before entering the hall and hurling insults at the other gods. Loki turns into a fly and bites a dwarf who is working the bellows in a forge fire while Thor's hammer is being made. Probably related to this is the fact that Loki's face is carved into a forged stone from Snoptoon. Loki is involved with cooking sometimes, which of course happens over a fire in this time period. This occurs once at an outdoor fire before the Jotun Thiazzi kidnaps Idun, and once at an indoor fireplace in a Faroese folktale, which we'll get to later. Loki eats a half-burned heart, 
and gives birth to the race of troll woman in Voluspahinskama. In what is probably just a reference to Ragnarok, he curses Agir's possessions as well as his back to be burned by fire. Loki is also the name of a house spirit in folklore in some parts of Scandinavia who lives in the fireplace and is given children's milk teeth, or what Americans call baby teeth, or a pinch of flour every now and then. These are the ways in which Loki is associated with fire in the sources. But you may notice that none of this sounds like a reason to believe he's a god of fire. He never uses any kind of fire-controlling power, and the event wherein he loses a competition against fire is particularly problematic to that interpretation. So what does this association, or this meme, of putting Loki and fire together in stories really mean? Well, notice that almost all the fires Loki is associated with are fires connected with eating or cooking, or are otherwise contained fires, such as what we'd find in a hearth or a forge. We could have noticed this without our knowledge of the folkloric idea of Loki as a house spirit in the fireplace, but adding that layer on top really starts to tie things together. But rather than listening to me trying to make my own amateur interpretations, let's turn instead to an expert whose papers I quite enjoy, Eldar Haida. Haida's theory, spoiler alert, is that Loki's association with fire comes from being a youngest child or mama's boy in his childhood. But whether or not you ultimately agree or disagree with that final conclusion, there's a ton of great stuff to consider about Loki's association with fire in Haida's paper called Loki, the Veta, and the Ash Lad. Haida's take is that the post-medieval material is an important key to understanding Loki as he exists in pagan material. Overall, he asserts there appear to be two different Lokis, one being the god we read about in the Eddas, and the other being a Veta. The English cognate there is white, spelled W-I-G-H-T, which in this case is like a domestic spirit that, as I mentioned, lives in or around or under the fireplace. And then the other big point is that the Scandinavian fairy tale hero called Ashlad tends to heavily overlap with Loki's character in mythology. Haida is a big fan of finding clues in folklore that can speak to an older age of those ideas, and then trying to use what he determines to be old ideas to help fill in the gaps we have in our mythological sources. And as far as he gets that right, I think it's a pretty cool technique. The impetus for this paper, which is also the big elephant in the room whenever we start talking about Loki's character, is that he doesn't seem consistent. In some stories, he's a completely beneficial travel companion for Thor. In some stories, he does awful things or creates awful problems that can't ultimately be resolved. And in yet other stories, he makes a mistake that causes a problem, gets threatened with death, and then solves that problem in a way that leaves the gods better off than they were when the story began, providing them with new and powerful resources they wouldn't have had otherwise. Haida sees parallels to this in the Scandinavian folklore character of the Ashlad, who he calls another super-provider. Ashlad is unacceptable to the establishment, and like Loki, is a semi-otherworlder. Haida believes this unique character context resolves the apparent conflict between Loki's beneficial and destructive activities. But before we dive too deep, Haida assumes that readers of his paper are already familiar with Ashlad. If you're not Scandinavian, which most of my audience is not, there's a good chance you've never heard of Ashlad before. But if you're old enough, you have probably been exposed to folklore about characters like the Brave Little Tailor or Jack the Giant Killer, 
And these stories have a lot of overlap with the Scandinavian Ashlad and contain a lot of identical events and themes. But just to make sure we all have some point of reference here, I'm going to pause the analysis for a bit and tell you the most famous Ashlad story. This one was actually made into a stop-motion film back in the 1960s, and it's called The Ashlad and the Good Helpers. Once upon a time, there was a king who had somehow become exposed to a crazy idea. And that idea was that there could exist a ship that was not only fast at sea, but was also able to travel over land equally fast. But however this idea got into the king's head isn't super important. More importantly, he decided that he really wanted a ship with this ability. So he put out a proclamation throughout all the land to be read in all the churches that if anyone could build a ship like this for the king, that person would be rewarded with the two things kings always promise as a reward for solving big problems in stories like this, half the kingdom and his daughter's hand in marriage. Of course, many skilled craftsmen tried their hand at building such a ship, but all of them failed and failed miserably. Now, it so happened that there were three brothers living in a house way out in the woods. The oldest was named Per, the next was named Pol, and the youngest was named Espen. But everybody called him Ashlad because he was always sitting by the hearth tending to the fire and digging in the ashes, which was traditionally expected behavior for a youngest son at the time. The boys didn't always attend church on Sundays, but on one particular Sunday, Espen the Ashlad just happened to be at church when the king's proclamation was read, and he came home to share the news with his brothers. Per, who was the oldest, decided to try his luck at crafting this fantastical ship. So he gathered up his tools and asked his mother to pack him some food and a knapsack, and then headed out into the woods to start working. While on his way, he came across a crooked old man who asked him where he was going, but Per thought it would be better to keep his task a secret. So he answered that he was headed out into the woods to make a special trough for his father because his father didn't really like to eat with the rest of the family. Ah, then a trough you shall make, said the old man. And what's in your knapsack there? Just some manure, Pear replied. Manure it is then, the old man said, and Pear headed back out into the woods. When he got to the patch of woods that he had in mind, he started chopping, and he chopped and chopped and chopped with all of his might and skill, but... No matter what work he did, he found himself entirely unable to build anything except troughs. And finally, after a disappointing day of work, Pear decided to break open his knapsack for dinner, but all he found inside was manure. With no food and no boat, Pear gave up and headed back home to his mother. Seeing that his older brother was unsuccessful, the middle child, Pole, now thought it would be a good idea to try his hand at building the ship. Maybe he'd be the lucky one to succeed where his brother had failed and win the king's daughter and half the kingdom. So, like his brother, he asked his mother for some provisions, he put them into a knapsack, and headed out into the woods. And along the way, he came upon that same crooked old man. "'Where are you going?' asked the man. And again, like his brother, Pole didn't want to reveal the true nature of his task. So, he answered that he was headed out to make a trough for the family's little pig to eat from. "'Ah, then a trough you shall make,' said the old man. "'And what's that in your bag there? "'Just manure, you know. "'Sometimes you gotta carry a bag of manure around "'while you're out doing some woodworking. "'So, you know, it's just some normal woodworking poop.' "'Manure it is, then,' said the old man. "'And when Paul finally arrived at the woodpatch he had in mind, "'he found himself in the same predicament as his brother. "'No matter how much he chopped, he could make nothing but troughs. "'And when he opened his knapsack, all it contained was manure.' 
Paul became very angry at this, and he wrung the knapsack inside out and smacked it against a tree stump, but there was nothing he could do, so he took his axe and strode back home to his mother. When Paul returned home unsuccessful, it was Espen the Ash Lad who wanted to try his luck at building the ship, and he likewise asked his mother for a knapsack. But his mother was not so supportive this time. Oh, like you could ever build a ship, she answered sarcastically. You, who have never done anything but play with ashes. No, I won't make you a knapsack. But mom, Ashlad replied, and after a typical mother-son argument, she finally agreed to let him go. But she still refused to pack him any provisions. However, when her back was turned, Ashlad was able to sneak himself two potato cakes and some lukewarm beer and then headed out into the woods full of confidence. Along the way, who should he meet but that same crooked old man his brothers had met? Where are you going? said the old man. But unlike his brothers, Ashlad replied honestly, I'm headed out to the forest to build a ship that goes as fast on land as it does on sea. That is a much better reply than I got from the last two fellows who passed by here, the old man mused. Both of them said they were off to build troughs, and I'm sure that's exactly what they did. Say, what do you have in your knapsack there? It was supposed to be my supper, Ashlad replied, but all I was able to grab before leaving the house was two potato cakes and some lukewarm beer. That's a much better reply than I got from the last two fellows who passed by here, the old man said. Both of them said they were just carrying manure, and I'm sure that's exactly what they had in their knapsacks. Let's make a deal. If you share your supper with me, I'll help you build your ship. Well, Ashlad figured that showing some kindness to the old man probably couldn't hurt. So he shared what he had with the stranger, and when they were through, the old man offered him some advice. Do you see that old oak tree over there? Cut a chip off of that tree and then put it right back where it came from. After you've done that, go to sleep. And when you wake up, you'll be grateful for my help. So Ashlad followed the old man's advice. And while he was asleep, he thought he heard the sounds of chopping and cutting and sawing in his dreams. And the next morning, he was awakened by the old man. Wake up, boy, and take a look at your new ship, he said. Ashlad opened his eyes and saw the most impressive ship he could have ever imagined, with a big, beautiful sail attached. This is amazing, thank you, Ashlad exclaimed. I'd better take it to the king right away. I have one more piece of advice for you, said the old man. Make sure you give a ride to anyone you meet along the way. I'll remember, and thank you again for your help, said the Ashlad, and he climbed aboard the ship and set sail across the land. Before he traveled too far, Ashlad came across another old man sitting in a quarry and eating rocks. Remembering that he had been advised to give a ride to everyone he might meet along the way, Ashlad stopped the ship to have a chat with the rock-eating man. Good morning, sir, he said, bringing the ship to a stop. Tell me, why are you sitting there eating rocks? It's because I'm always so hungry, replied the man, and especially for meat. I just can't get enough meat, but I have no food, and so I'm forced to resort to eating these rocks. By the way, that's a fine ship you have there. Would you mind giving me a ride? Not at all, said the ash lad, and the rock-eating man climbed aboard the ship. When they had sailed a little ways further, they came upon another man who was lying on a sunny hill, trying to suck the last remaining drops of ale from what appeared to be an empty tap. Say, why are you sucking on that tap, sir? The ash lad inquired as he brought the ship to a stop. It's because I'm always so thirsty, the man replied, but especially for beer and wine. I just can't get enough. But I have no barrels to speak of, so I'm forced to suck on this empty tap. By the way, that's a fine ship you have there. Would you mind giving me a ride? Not at all, said the ash lad, and he welcomed the tap-sucking man aboard. 
Next, they came upon a man who lay on the ground with his ear pressed into the dirt as if he were listening for something. Excuse me, sir, what are you doing? asked the ash lad as he stopped the ship. Well, you see, my hearing is so good that I can hear the grass growing, the man replied, so I'm listening to the growing grass. Hey, by the way, that's a fine ship you have there. Would you mind giving me a ride? And of course, the grass hearing man was welcomed aboard the ship. Before reaching the king's palace, the ash lad and his misfit crew brought aboard three more odd characters. One was a man whose sight was so keen that he could make a clean shot with a gun all the way at the edge of the earth. Another was a man who was such a fast runner that he had to keep 700 weights on one of his feet in order to keep himself moving at a normal pace. And lastly, there was a man who had somehow managed to consume seven summers and 15 winters. He had to keep a hand over his mouth at all times, otherwise they might all escape at once and cause the end of the world. But finally, the ash lad and his ragtag band of weirdos made it to the king's palace. When they arrived, Ashlad strode boldly up to the king and told him that the ship he desired was standing ready in the yard. And now the Ashlad would gladly take the king's daughter in marriage as well as half the kingdom as had been promised. The king was elated to see the ship, but was not so happy about seeing the Ashlad because Ashlad was black and sooty from playing in the ashes and he didn't look like he was worth very much money. So the king began trying to weasel his way out of the promise he'd made. I'll tell you what, he said. I have a storehouse with 300 barrels of meat in it that needs to be emptied. If you can get that done by tomorrow, then you can marry my daughter. I guess I'll have to try, replied the ash lad, but can I at least bring one of my friends along to help me? The king thought this task was so big and impossible that he could have let the ash lad bring his entire entourage along if he'd wanted, so agreeing to allow one helper seemed perfectly fine. Ashlad, of course, brought with him the man with an insatiable appetite for meat, who easily cleared the storehouse in a single night and left just enough food for each of the members of Ashlad's crew to have a nice shoulder of mutton of their own. The king was surprised and impressed, but was still not very happy about Ashlad's appearance and his station in life, so he came up with another task. I have a cellar with 300 barrels of beer and 300 barrels of wine, he said and stipulated that Ashlad would only be able to marry his daughter if he could drink all of it up in one night. Again, Ashlad asked for a single helper, and again the king agreed. This time, he brought with him the tap-sucking man, who was easily able to clear out the entire cellar in a single night, leaving just a few tankards, one for each of the Ashlad's crew. Well, the king's mind was blown over what Ashlad had been able to accomplish so far, but he was still determined to weasel his way out of the deal. So the next task he set was that water for the princess's tea would need to be retrieved from a special place at the edge of the world, and it would need to be done within the next 10 minutes. Surely an impossible task. But Ashlad had a friend who was perfectly suited for this job as well. The man who kept 700 weights on his foot to slow himself down removed all of the weights and bolted off towards the edge of the world like a streak of lightning. Except the minutes began to tick by and he still hadn't returned. When time was almost up, Ashlad saw that the king was becoming giddy, and he himself was getting pretty nervous, so he asked the man who could hear grass growing to listen as hard as he could all the way to the edge of the world to figure out what was wrong. Oh, he's there at the edge of the world, the man with super hearing said, but I can hear him snoring. He's fallen asleep at the well, apparently, 
and he seems to be under the magical power of a troll who I can hear combing his hair. Ashlad then called to the man who could sharpshoot a bullseye exactly at this type of ridiculous distance and asked, Can you put a shot into that troll? Aye, aye, Captain, the sharpshooter replied, and immediately put a bullet into the troll's eye. When this happened, the troll let out a roar, which woke up the quick-running man, and he raced back to the palace with the princess's tea water with still a minute to spare. Finally, the king realized that he couldn't continue trying to weasel out of this deal for much longer. I have one final task, he said, and if you can accomplish it, I will know that there is nothing you can't do, and I will let you marry my daughter. I have 300 cords of wood I was going to use to dry the grain in the bathhouse. If you're man enough to sit in there while it all burns up, I'll have no more tasks for you to do. I'll have to try, Ashlad replied, but I suppose I can have a friend to sit in there with me? Of course, said the king, you can bring all your friends if you want. But Ashlad only brought with him the man who had consumed seven summers and fifteen winters, and the two of them strode into the bathhouse. As it happened, the king had gotten a roaring fire going in there, making the place as hot as a cast-iron stove, and the king barred the door behind them so that they couldn't escape as soon as they went in. The intent, of course, was to burn the Ashlad alive and be rid of this problem once and for all. "'It is hot in here!' said the Ashlad to the season-eating man. Can you let out a couple of those winters to cool things down? Sure thing, his companion said, and he breathed out a couple of winters until things felt quite nice in the bathhouse. In fact, as night came on, it even started to get a little chilly in there, so the man ended up having to let out a couple of summers as well, just to make sure the temperature stayed nice and pleasant. When morning came, and they heard the king rummaging around outside, Ashlad asked his companion to let out a couple more winters, just so that the king would see that it was really cold in the bathhouse when he opened the door, and then to let out just one final winter right in the king's face when he opened the door. This the companion did, and the king's face became one big red itchy chillblain. I suppose I can have your daughter now, pressed the Ashlad, and defeated, the king finally agreed, and he dared not try to put things off any longer. So a great wedding was thrown, and everyone reveled and made merry and fired off shots to scare away troll hags as you do, and as they were searching around for another bullet wadding to stuff down the barrel of the gun, they accidentally grabbed me by mistake and shoved me down into the barrel and shot me straight here so I could tell you this story. The end. And now, you are familiar with the Ash Lad, if you weren't before. But keep in mind, this is just one of many Ash Lad stories that exist. Notice that the Ashlad is associated with fire in two ways in this story. One is that he likes to poke around in the ashes of the fireplace at home. And two is that the king attempts to burn him alive. He's also the youngest of three brothers and represents a threat to the social order perpetuated by the king. The king wants something, and Ashlad is the one who provides it. But it's done in a way that subverts the social order. He's an unclean peasant demanding marriage to a princess. As moderners or as commoners, Ashlad looks to us like a hero, but to the upper social strata in ancient times, Ashlad appears repellent. In that sense, he's both a helper to the king, specifically what Haida would call a super provider in giving him that ship, but also a problem for the king. You might be starting to see why Haida looks to the Ashlad as an analogy for helping us understand Loki. The possible identification between Loki and Lothar in the poem Voluspa, as I've talked about before, even seems to slot Loki in as a third of three brothers. There are a lot of similar themes here. But to be clear, Haida does not believe the Ashlad and Loki were ever identical characters per se. 
What he does believe is that the House White version of Loki, again, that's W-I-G-H-T, House White, is where everything else stems from. The mythological Loki, he says, was probably derived from the House White Loki because certain Loki myths seem to contain allusions to House White-type details. And looking at the ways in which Loki and Ashlad overlap can potentially help us understand narratives surrounding Loki when those narratives contain similar elements. So let's go searching for relics of an early Loki in surviving mentions of later Loki. Haida starts off by summarizing prior research by earlier scholars whose ideas weren't originally taken too seriously, but whose work he sees a lot of value in regardless. Hilding Kellander, for instance, laid a foundation for the name Loki being treated the way Scandinavians tend to treat other house-elf-type creatures, like the Tomten and Nissen. For example, heat hazes appearing over newly plowed fields are attributed to Loki driving a flock. Birds shedding their feathers can be referred to as those birds getting caught in Loki's harrow. Loki has sometimes been said to have helped farmers till fields in the spring. And then there are examples like the ones I've already mentioned, where in certain areas, the housewife living in or under the fireplace was referred to as Loki. And by the way, I should mention that in most of these cases, we're dealing with more modern forms of the name Loki, things like Loka or Luki, but etymologically, Haida is convinced that all of these stem from Loki as a root. He also notes that Anna Ruth took a different approach than Kellander, pointing out that the name Loka or Luki is also a Swedish dialectical word for a daddy long-legged spider, and that a cobweb has traditionally in the past been called a lokanet, literally Loki's net, and both of these ideas are repeated in the Faroe Islands. Ruth linked this to the myth where Loki sits in front of a fireplace and invents a fishing net, and concluded that spider was the original meaning of Loki's name, though Haida doesn't agree with that last part. He points out that the spider Loki could theoretically be thought of as a subcategory of the housewhite Loki, because in several Germanic-speaking areas, daddy longlegs and cobwebs were both believed to bring luck or wealth to a home or farm, and could help farmers with herding and harvesting, exactly like other forms of housewhites. In fact, Scandinavian vetter, whites, often don't appear in anthropomorphic shape during the day, but instead, they typically take on the form of all kinds of animals, just like Loki does in the myths. In fact, this particular type of being, as opposed to some of the other kinds of gnomes or hobs or whatever you want to call them in English, like the Tomten, for example, tend to be more hostile and dangerous. Whites do help and protect the farm, but they're easily offended and can quickly turn against you. So here's the general idea we're building toward. Apart from the evidence that Kellander and Ruth identified, and assuming all of these variations on the name really are all just dialectical reflections of the name Loki, we also know that Loka is identified with the Tomten in Smallland. Cracking and whistling of a fire is attributed to Loki or Luki in both Dalarna Sweden and Telemark Norway, and a Lokologi, or Loki's flame, is what you call the first flame from a newly lit fire in the Faroe Islands. Also, Luki is a name for a fireplace white we find having been adopted in Ostrobothnia in Finland. So, as Haida would explain it, because the pharaohs, Telemark, Dalarna, and Ostrobothnia have traditionally been isolated from each other, this idea of Loki being connected with hearth fires, seemingly as some kind of a white, 
looks a lot less like a case of more recent cultural borrowing and a lot more like a relic of an ancient Scandinavian common tradition independently being preserved in some of the region's most conservative areas. We get the same kind of distribution with the idea of throwing milk teeth to Loka or Luki in the fireplace. It comes from southeastern Sweden, Swedish Finland, and Swedish Estonia, but is also attested in interior eastern Jutland and interior eastern Norway. Because this is not just a fairy tale, but a fixed ritual attached to a specific name, Haida believes the distribution indicates that this idea is also probably ancient. In fact, a similar idea, where you give milk teeth to someone called Mouse in the fire, can also be found in Germany, the Baltic countries, Scotland, and other places in mainland Scandinavia. And the prevailing theory for why a mouse would be involved is because mice living in the house have traditionally been identified with domestic spirits. So in that light, it looks like this is just another derivation on the same housewife theme. Anyway, Haida gives us pages and pages of this type of thing. He explains why there's a double K in some variants like loca, why there's a U instead of an O in some variants, why loca and another weird variant noca with an N are actually just two variants of the same proto-Scandinavian idea related to the way early locks worked. At the end of it, he notes that even if he happens to be wrong about one or two of these ideas, there is an enormous pattern of evidence all pointing in the same direction, where Loki is connected to the idea of a housewite. But let's get back to how this connects to the Ashlad. As it turns out, there are two folk tales in particular, one from Iceland called Lokalugi and one from the Pharaohs called Rissen Ogloki that feature a character named Loki finding himself in exactly the same kinds of situations that are characteristic of Ashlad stories across Scandinavia. Haida notes that prior scholarship has proposed the name Loki was inserted later, but he disagrees. Haida believes it doesn't make any sense to insert Loki into existing stories during a time period when people conventionally believe Loki was being forgotten. And if the name of the hero in an Ashlad-type story was going to be changed, we should have expected it to be changed to the most common name found for protagonists in fairy tales in those areas. So in Faroese, this should have been Uskuldolgr, and in Icelandic, it should have been Kolbitur. In both places, the name defied pressure to conform, and in both places, it ended up being a form of Loki. So for that reason, as well as a few others, Haida thinks the connection with Loki to the Ashlad stories is probably ancient as well. Here are a few more similarities between Ashlad and Loki. Both characters are portrayed as outsiders at the king's court. Both characters have been attested as transforming into a bird. There's a scene where Ashlad's curiosity gets the better of him while in bird shape and he gets captured, which is reminiscent of how Loki gets captured in the Garother myth. Ashlad provides a magic ship to a king, whereas Loki provides a magic ship to Freyr. We're told that Loki is sly and cunning, and Ashlad tends to succeed in his endeavors exactly through slyness and cunning. In the myth of the kidnapping of Idun, Loki gets stuck to a pole, which is also stuck to a supernatural bird, and then later has the job of making Skadi laugh. Whereas, there is an Ashlad story where Ashlad makes a princess laugh by dragging a row of people stuck to a supernatural bird. Both characters are attested as using their genitals as tools for pulling things to get positive responses out of women. There's also the whole super provider thing I mentioned before. These types of things go on and on and on. But, there are some major differences too. 
Ashlad is never the source of the problem in the story that he shows up in, and he tends not to cause any harm, whereas Loki is often the source of the problem, and he commits murder sometimes and even participates in the destruction of the world. Haida solves this problem by noting that we're just dealing with a difference in genre and perspective. Loki myths are told from the perspective of the king and his court, Odin and the other gods, the topmost strata of society being the good guys. But Ashlad's stories are told from the perspective of lower classes, regular folk being the good guys. In both cases, we see the establishment being overthrown, and whether or not this is a praiseworthy thing depends on whose side you're on in any given story. So here are the three legs of the triangle Haida is giving us. We have a mythological character named Loki, who shows up in connection to fire sometimes, especially hearth fires. We have a folkloric housewife creature named Loki, who tends to live in the fireplace. And we have the Ashlad folk hero, who is sometimes named Loki, and who begins his stories at home by the fireplace, and uses his cunning to make himself both a super provider to the establishment, and also to overthrow it. For some reason, there appears to have been some overlap between these three things in the minds of ancient Scandinavians. Haida suggests that maybe the mythological Loki was given the name of the White because he was a third brother with a lazy, mama's boy-type childhood sitting in front of the fireplace, something that the myths don't ever actually tell us. But to me, that's a less intriguing idea than the overall theme Haida detects in myths about Loki and tales about the Ashlad, which is that, quote, For the king in the Ashlad fairy tales, there is no way of obtaining only the treasures. The overthrowing of his regime is the other side of the coin, although he does not understand this initially. If we can transfer this to the mythology, it counts against the understanding that the opposites should not be reconciled and everything would have gone fine if this had not happened. The founding and development of the god's society requires the exploitation of the dwarfs and giants, and hence a reconciliation of the fundamental opposites, although this eventually leads to disaster. If we turn to other Old Norse myths, the idea that there is no such thing as a free lunch is clear. This pattern may confirm the understanding of Loki that can be derived from the Ashlad fairy tales. A contradiction between Loki's beneficial and damaging sides does not really exist, because they both reflect his intermediate status, or, from the establishment's point of view, his perversion. Loki, like the Ashlad, is a bridge to the Otherworld because he himself is a semi-Otherworlder, and as such, he is both indispensable and unacceptable. He makes invaluable contributions to society, but allowing him into it means opening it to otherworldly powers. Loki's siding with the giants at Ragnarok follows from his closeness to otherworldly powers, which also makes him so beneficial to the Asir that they cannot do without him. There is no such thing as a single-sided coin." End quote. So there you have it. Loki's association with fire seems to have nothing at all to do with being a god of fire. If you agree with Haida, his character is derived from the housewife, living in or around the fireplace. And though I don't think he ever actually comes out and says this directly in the paper, Loki does behave very much like the housewife of the gods, and less like a god status being himself. And as a semi-outsider, he also represents the adult genre version of Ashlad in Osgarther, providing necessary tools for the gods, but not without a price. And isn't it interesting that the ultimate price the gods have to pay comes in the form of fire? 
But this is the type of thing you ought to expect whenever someone tells you that so-and-so is associated with such-and-such. -such. When you really start digging into it, it's often a confusing mess. And in this case, we've ignored half the paper that ties all of this stuff back to Loki's weird association with nets and fishing, because there just isn't enough time to cover everything. So make sure to tune in again next time, when I'll continue to ramble for way too long and still only cover things about halfway, on Norse Mythology, The Unofficial Guide. Sources for this episode include Loki, the Vata, and the Ashlad, a study combining old Scandinavian and late material by Elder Haida, 2011, The Poetic Edda, translated by Caroline Larrington, 2014, and The Prose Edda, translated by Anthony Falks, 1995.